Professor Malucci has received numerous national and international awards for her work, and in 2017, she was elected Fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences. Giovanna, welcome to the festival. Thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. Um, so I, I'm going to give you a talk about our research, which, however, you know, it, it does reflect the, whole, the research of the whole UK Dementia Research Institute. That's fine if you're all right with that. <laughs> as long as I don't go to sleep. Um, and I am going to show you some scientific data. I'm going to try and keep it to a minimum, but if we're talking about the science that goes on in Cambridge, we do have to show you where we get our ideas from. And um, I, I'm happy with that. It's fine. Um, so I'm going I'm to tell you about um, a, a, a road, our road to new dementia treatments. Um, dementia, as many of you will know, is one, is one of the neurodegenerative, is a broad term for the loss of cognitive capacity, usually that occurs in the co context of neurodegenerative disease. And this is a list of disorders, which these are a few of. The most, you will all know someone with Alzheimer's disease, and most of you will know someone with Parkinson's disease. But they get rarer as you go down. And prion disease or mad cow, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease is extremely rare. But they are diseases which I will, I will explain to you have a commonality, and have a commonality of, of mechanism and, and source. Um, and therefore, that we, we can learn from all of these disorders in, in order to treat all or any of them. Now, they are very much diseases of aging, which is, um, of course, a, a given, but it's an enormous problem because the world is aging. And by 2040, in fact, this is already out of date, they're going to be the commonest cause of death in the develop, developed world. And already in the developing world, China, India, South America are all aging, and these diseases are, are all becoming more common. And, and the burden on society is that apart from the enormous suffering um, that the, the loss of faculty and, and reasoning brings, is the burden of society is, is, the, is the social and medical care costs. So they already cost 2% of the world's GDP to look after dementia. And you can imagine with an aging world, those costs are escalating. So there, there, this is a, there is a crisis in, in one of the real unmet needs, needs of, of medical care and medical science. We have no curative or, or disease-modifying treatments for these. Um, we have nothing can, that can slow the progress of these disorders. So that has led here in Britain um, to the establishment of the UK Dementia Research Institute, which was David Cameron's uh, 2012 pledge in his uh, G8 summit on dementia when he, he, he proclaimed that there would be a cure by 2025. So it's, it's creeping on us, this deadline. And we got the institute about a year ago. So, but, but, we're, but I'll show you what we're doing to get there. So I'm going to take you through some of the basic um, underlying, what we call pathology, and, and, and some of the science that we've done to try and address this problem. So these are brain cells, <coughs> and these are synapses. And the synapses are the connections between brain cells. And I always think, actually, a plug and socket is a, an excellent image of a synapse. And you can imagine that this is how um, each brain cell communicates and connects to the next brain cell. And these, the, the synaptic connections are where memories are made and formed and stored, and also where all information that goes from one brain cell to another um, occurs. So these are massively important connections and internodes between brain cells. 
And in all of these disorders, what you get as the first stage is loss of synapses. Um, and and, and that, is, that will be familiar to any of you who know people with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Those will be the early symptoms of memory loss, of motor movement problems. Um, but the problem is that when you lose enough synapses, your brain cells will then die because these not only are the, are the home of memory and, and communication, but they're also a source of, of, of sustenance um, to the cell. You need, you need a, a brain cell needs a certain number of synapses to, to survive, otherwise it will die. So in all of these disorders, um, you get loss of brain cells, and in all of them you get loss of synapses. But the pattern of that loss differs. But, but there's a fundamental underlying consistent theme, which is, which is that. And this is um, how I represent this. And if there was only one slide that I want you to pay attention to, it's this slide, because this, this tells you everything you need to know about causes and possible cures for neurodegeneration. So the first thing, this is time, and this is number, and these, this curve here represents the decline in synapses. That was the connections between nerve cells, the, these things. And the other thing that happens in all of these disorders that many of you will have heard of is the accumulation of what we call misfolded proteins. And in Alzheimer's, these are, these are proteins that are known as A-beta or tau. In Parkinson's, they have other names. But these two processes are going on during the course of these diseases. Any disease, I have, I've specifically not named which, which protein because each disease will have its own protein. And this is, this is what I was telling you about. So the, the loss of synapses, we have millions and billions of synapses in our brain. And actually we can lose more than half before we notice anything's going on. But what you do know, what about 60% loss of synapses, which this, this is happening during aging anyway, but it's accelerated during these diseases. But at about 60 or 70% of synapse loss, that's when you have your first memory symptoms and your first, and my, I run a clinic for dementia, and uh, my patients who are coming in to see me with their first memory symptoms or more, even more, more advanced, are usually at about this point in the curve. All you need is to lose another 15 or 20%, I mean, I'm slightly making up the numbers because of course we don't know in each individual, but it's not much more that you then get brain cell loss. So that's, again, the, the, the uh, support role of synapses in keeping brain cells alive is, is, is critical there. So you can see how rapidly and how narrow that window is for, for, for stopping this stage. This stage is irreversible, okay? And this stage is the stage that is associated with then the sort of catastrophic decline and institutionalization. So this is really what we're aiming to, to prevent. And, and um, the, the synapses are, are things that you can regenerate, but brain cells you can't. Once that's gone, it's gone. But these you can, you can replace and replenish. So you can see how important this curve is and how important intervening in this window is. And the other thing I want to point out about this is that um, if you change the slope of this curve by just a very small amount, you can see that so imagine if you just change this and then suddenly 60%, you're now 80 at 60% synapse loss. And so that's when your first memory symptoms come. Um, and then when your brain cells die, you're 95 and you may well have died of another cause by that stage. So changing the slope of this curve and just even changing the onset of this by one or two years on a population basis will completely modify um, 
the, 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 the experience and the natural progression of disease and whether or not you can stay at home or you, you are institutionalised. It's, it's a massive impact from a small effect. Um, and it's already happening. I want, th I want this to be a very optimistic lecture because this is already happening. Um, we know from all the big studies of incidents of dementia worldwide, one by Carol Brain here in Cambridge, in fact, um, that actually the incidence with that aging population, that I, I could show you maps of the aging world and incidents of dementia all over the place, but it, it, it gets very sort of, um, you know, in, um, data heavy. But, but Carol has shown, has found that actually dementia is not rising as rapidly. It's still rising very, you know, it's still a major uh, problem for us, but the rise isn't as high as was predicted. And that's because of lifestyle changes and people uh, modifying risk factors, um, exercising, um, controlling diabetes and all those things. So you can control that curve um, and you can keep, uh, you can push that away, that, that onset. And, and we've done that in mice, which I'm going to show you now. Um, and I, I'm sure we can do it in patients. Um, so our, our lab's sort of mantra and, and uh, is, is common mechanisms for common cures to get away from all the massive failures that have happened with specific approaches um, and um, so that we can find new ways of treating dementia. So how do we study them? So I hope you will all tolerate the fact that we have worked in the best interests of humanity with mice, um, but our, our, we do make mice better. So that's, um, that's, that's a good thing. Um, so this mouse, so there are mouse models of Alzheimer's disease and there are mouse models of Parkinson's disease, but they're not really that they only partially represent what's happening in human brains. Mice don't get Alzheimer's disease. This mouse has got prion disease, which was right at the bottom of that list of diseases at the beginning. It's a rare disorder, but this mouse has got that disorder, which in every way, from biochemistry to clinical to pathology, to absolutely mimics and recapitulates the human disease. So it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant model for us to answer the question of, um, the two processes I was showing. How, how does, um, how do these, these are the protein, I showed you the, a curve showing protein misfolding because that also impacts on synapses. How, does, how do these protein aggregates, so what you're looking at here is a slice of brain and clumps of misfolded protein called amyloid. Um, and here, these, these are scattered throughout the brain in all these disorders. And here, you're looking at a piece of brain, this is a part of the brain that is the organ of memory, the hippocampus. And what you can see, it's supposed to have, these are the brain cells that were in my cartoon. Um, it's supposed to have these lovely round and chunky brain cells, but you can see here that they've absolutely degenerated. This, this ribbon here is supposed to look like that ribbon there. So that's brain cell death. So that's from this prion mouse. And you can see that it, uh, it's going to let us, give us access into how this protein accumulation and misfolding leads to the loss of synapses and the brain cell death that you're seeing here. So this is where we do some biochemistry. So this is a, this is a, a protein which is correctly folded. So proteins, we always talk about misfolded proteins. Proteins are the workhorses of a cell. They have functions. And the function depends on, on their folding. So this is a, a, a correctly folded protein whose function is, a is as a deck chair. Um, and you can see that you can sit in this, that it's aligned correctly, etc. This is the same protein, misfolded. And you can see what's happened here. You can't sit in this, it's no longer functional, and it's building up. So this is, this is exactly what those clumps 
here represent? They represent incorrectly uh, accumulated clumps of, of misfolded proteins. And when they're misfolded, they're out of action, they've lost their function, and they're blocking the system. So this is, this is a major stress on a cell. So here, this is the cartoon of that. This is correctly folded protein, the prion protein, and here's the incorrectly, the, the stacking up misfolded protein. And these are converted during disease. And all of these, all of these diseases have this as their central process, um, which, is, which is at the heart of that accumulation of amyloid. And when I started my research, um, so this is prion protein, this, this had been discovered, this form here, which is the misfolded protein. And there are a number of Nobel Prizes around its discovery, mainly because on its own, this was infectious and capable of spreading neurodegenerative disease from person to person, from person to, to monkey, and, and, and um, you know, from, 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 from mouse to, to other species. And that was an extraordinary phenomenon in biology. So there are lots of Nobel Prizes around this and its discovery, but none of the approaches that reduce this form, the clumped up form, um, were in any way therapeutic. Nothing helped cure the disease. So for my research, I did a, 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 I targeted, I took a different approach. So what was very clear was even if this was not, this is definitely infectious, even if it's not killing brain cells, the conversion of this to this is killing brain cells. Because if you take this away and just put this into a brain, nothing happens. So what I did was removed the normal form, the correctly formed protein, from, from brains in mice with active prion disease to see what happened. And what you'll see is these are all the mice, uh, the controls that are all dying at 12 weeks. They've got prion disease, the ones I showed you a photo of, they're all dying at 12 weeks. In a separate cohort, at this point, about three quarters of the way through their disease course, I, I engineered the mice so that we could take out the normal form and stop the production of the misfolded. So you're not taking away the misfolded, you're stopping the conversion. You're assuming that what's happening is something to do with misfolding itself rather than buildup of, of, of misfolded dextrose. And the result there was that all those mice survived for the rest of their lives, completely cured. And this was, this was a staggering result because nothing like this had been seen before. It was, it was also pretty unexpected. And it was published in Science. And it made a lot of um, uh, impact because um, it prevented disease, but it also reversed, reversed spongiosis. And spongiosis is this early. This represents the loss of synapses. So here is a control mouse at about eight weeks, about two-thirds of the way through his prion disease incubation. Lovely, healthy ribbon, but early synapse loss. But the brain cells haven't died yet. Just four weeks later, you can, you can all see that that ribbon has disappeared. This whole organ has shrunk. And if you look here, all the lovely, chunky neuron, uh, brain cells have, have, have disappeared. In the mice in which we take out, at this stage, the substrate for that misfolding, um, at this stage, you can see that you protect that ribbon and you reverse the synapse loss, okay? But this, this is why the mice are still alive and this is why they don't have any more disease and this is, the reversal of that represents the recovery of memory and all those functions that were gone due to synapse loss. So what, what, this, this was a, um, a major, the, the cure of prion disease of course was very exciting but that's a, 
a rare disorder with limited clinical scope. But this phenomenon is very exciting because what it tells you is that early degenerative change can be reversed. And um, what we did here was that was the first publication where we showed that the, the brain's recovered. In this paper, we showed that memory and all the, the electrical functions of the brain recovered. And in this paper, we did a different approach to get the same result, which is always what you need to do in science if anything's going to be true. Because um, there's always a chance that it's just an artifact of the, the approach you use. But we, here we used a different way of removing the protein and it also worked. So from there, what I really wanted to know is if that's true for prion disease, it's going to be true for all brain diseases. And how do we understand what the toxic and the protective pathways involved at that stage are? How do we understand them? So we did a very simple thing, which was just to measure everything from the very beginning and to see what changed. And the thing that we found was you all remember the synapses. The synapses are held together by proteins, which are specific to their function. And what we found was that all of the synaptic proteins levels were dropping very, very substantially at about um, two-thirds of the way through their disease course. Remember, they all die at 12 weeks, so this is nine, nine weeks. And that drop in synaptic proteins was associated with changes in memory and motivational behavior. This mouse is um, uh, doing a burrowing task. It's, that's a motivational task that involves that region of the brain. Um, a healthy mouse will burrow all those pellets out. You can measure it, and uh, you can see that, that when it loses its synaptic proteins and its synapses, um, it stops burrowing, and the same is true of memory. And what follows that loss of, of, of synaptic proteins is the loss of brain cells, which are all now expert in diagnosing because that's a healthy ribbon and that's a degenerating ribbon. So this is a critical point. This loss in, here's a synapse high, in high um, resolution. It's a, it's a cartoon, but this is what they look like. And what, what, what's happening here is that you're losing the synaptic proteins and these are falling apart. And then that has knock-on effects for every, everything that I've been telling you about. So the question is, why is it happening? So remember the misfolded protein um, reaction that's at the heart of all of this. And I, I showed you what a stack of folded deck chairs as opposed to a stack of correctly assembled deck chairs look like. So when you have those, that's a stress to the cell. And cells try and correct stress. Okay, so if, 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 if any of you gets a fever, your body will respond to try and reduce that fever. If you get cold, your, your, your body and behavior unconsciously will be triggered to correct that and bring you back to a normal temperature. So when you get a load of these in a cell, this response kicks in. And, and this is where we're going to do a tiny bit of biochemistry. Um, so the unfolded protein response is designed to correct that protein misfolding and to, to, to correct this buildup and this backlog. And it does, it does two things. It, the minute this happens, um, a pathway is, is, is activated, which I'm going to show you in a minute, which leads to the expression of what we call chaperones, and chaperones are literally things that refold, so they take these and they refold them into that. And then it also activates a process to stop production just so the cell can recover, which it involves the production of new proteins. So here's the pathway, here's the misfolded proteins. There's, this is a, a molecule called PERC, which when these get accumulate to a dangerous level, it's activated, a red P is put on it. When when PERC has a red P on it, it goes and finds this molecule, ER2-alpha, and puts a red P on that, and that stops protein production. So it's a way of stopping 
so that you can then fix yourself, okay? Now, this is normally this is happening all the time. It's happening in all of you now. It's happening in all the cells of all our body as, as, because our proteins are constantly misfolding. But it's usually pretty rapid, this, and it's rapidly reversed by this, the, the, the activity of this molecule, which takes that red P off and restores protein production. So that's a normal uh, repair mechanism. And what we discovered was that, uh, that this is overexpressed and overactivated and goes wrong in this. Our, our misfolded protein in the degenerative mouse model leads to very high levels over time of the phosphorylated PERC, of the activated PERC, and very high levels of this. And here you can see we've measured the production of proteins, and this is radically reduced by this pathway for what you can see here is weeks. It's supposed to be minutes or, or seconds even, the correction, but um, it's weeks. And the result of that is that brain cells die. Okay, that, well, that was our hypothesis. We were saying this pathway is overactivated, loss of synaptic proteins, makes sense that brain cells die. So the first thing we had to do was prove that we were right, and we then used genetic engineering um, methods to knock down, to basically change the status of this, take that phosphate group off during disease. So we're not, now not targeting, the first story I showed you was removing the prime protein altogether. Now we're leaving the prime protein in, but we're gonna, we're gonna take, because here we've said that this is happening because of the prime protein misfolding, that all of this is happening. So now we're gonna ignore the prime protein misfolding, but we're just gonna take this phosphate group off to see if we can restore protein production in the context of, of the misfolded protein. So we do that with these viruses that we put in, uh, and uh, this is genetic engineering. It involves, you, you genetically engineer a virus and you inject it into the brain, and these two approaches aim to reduce that phosphate, that, that activated P. Um, and then, so here they are. Here's the experiment. Here, these are all the mice that you inject and you treat with, um, all these, these are all the controls. This is a control that acts in the opposite direction. But these are the two I want you to focus on. These are aimed at reducing that level of, of activated EIF2. And they beautifully restore protein synthesis rates because it's only that red phosphate that stops proteins being made. You take it off by these two ways and you get protein synthesis back and that rescues your brain cells. So now you haven't, and the same, you've got the same level of all the misfolded proteins and you haven't targeted any of the disease-specific process, but you've, common, you've targeted a common mechanism. And you can see this beautiful neuroprotection here. And the other stunning effect was survival. Do you remember they all die at 12 weeks? Well, just one injection into each side of the brain of this effect produced a very long, a very significant increase in survival. So um, that was a, that was a major uh, step forward of showing a mechanism that was killing brain cells that was not directly due to the disease-associated proteins. Um, so that the question now is, can we do it with drugs? Because it's all, you get nature papers, which we love as scientists, but they, they're basically in mice with genetic engineering and they're you know, all very high-tech, but not a lot of use to patients. But so can we do it to drugs? So that's the next step. So when, I, when we were doing this work, here's the pathway, we, we need to reduce the activation of this. And we needed something that would either target here or here to stop this happening. And, and nothing existed, but I, you know, there's, there's a grapevine that goes round in science. And someone said to me, 
GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, have made this molecule to inhibit PERC for a cancer treatment, but they're not happy with it. It's a rubbish cancer treatment. So, so I, I rang them, li literally picked up the phone and said, I hear you've got this molecule. I've got this story. Um, can we try it in, in, this, in, in the dementia model, in the neurodegeneration model? So we did. So I'm going to show you. Uh, so here's the experiment. You give the mice the disease, and then we treated, and this was oral treatments. These mice are just given oral drug, and it gets into the brain, um, and they're given it at a, a stage which is either the early memory loss or a bit later during disease. So really clinically relevant intervention times. And I'm going to show you some videos. So this, that was the burrowing test. The mice have both got Pine disease. They're all intimates. They've all got the disease. Some have had drugs and some haven't. And you can see that this, this mouse is doing its job. And this mouse absolutely isn't. I mean, and this is a major deficit. You know, he, he wouldn't be able to nest or look after himself. So this is a major behavioral problem. But it's an early thing. Here you'll see. Um, these two mice, this is a bit more advanced disease. You can see this mouse has got paralyzed back legs. I'm glad you've all, well, because this is wow. Um, this is clinical cure, um, which, is, which is extraordinary. They're, they've got the same amount of, of the disease process. But um, then you'll see the, these animals. That you, anyone who's ever seen a patient with prion disease will realize how good these mice are, how, how similar they are. Did you see he nearly fell over? He's not moving very much. He's got a very abnormal posture, and that's his tr drug-treated litanate, same amount of disease. And just, just to show you how profound this is, some of these work and some of them don't. Hang on. Um, you cannot put <laughs> a healthy animal on its back. It writes itself. And that's what you're seeing down here. You can see this. He's absolutely doesn't know what to do. No coordination. No, no, no reflex. Um, so this was a really big deal. This is this is clinical cure of a neuro of a rapid and severe neurodegenerative disease uh, in mice. And it was the first time a small molecule, what we call a, it's not we can't call it a drug because it's not licensed, but something given orally as a as a like a drug treatment did did this. Um, and it did it by restoring protein synthesis rates. There they are. Um, and you look how um, fantastically neuroprotective. These are the mice not treated with their degenerated hippocampi, which you're familiar with, and there's the effect of the drug. And here, again, you haven't targeted the disease itself. You've literally, all that GSK does is stops PERC putting that red, red P on the, on, the, on, the, on the molecule that stops protein synthesis. So, so this was another really um, big story, again, because it was the first treatment uh, of oral treatment that prevented neurodegeneration. And it was picked up by the BBC and all over the world, actually, as a, as a breakthrough and turning point in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and you're like, but what are the, you know, how do they know? <laughs> because, because, you know, this isn't general knowledge. But actually, what they, what the, science media had picked up on, and, and I was quite impressed that they knew, was um, that actually Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and tauopathies and ALS all have these high levels of this pathway activation in their brains. Okay? And, and we know this from brains of, of patients who have died and have donated their brains to research. Um, the day that my paper came out, um, there were two papers 
published one from New York, from a lab in Columbia, and one from a lab in, um, in, in Texas, showing that by changing uh, the activation of EIF-12 in different ways, um, using different, there's other, other proteins that can do that, but other genetic ways of doing that, restored memory in other mouse models of Alzheimer's and other memory models, and Nancy Benini used the same drug as we did and cured some flies with a motor neuron disease. So it wasn't, you, you mustn't be on your own in science. You have to show, every, if, if your data has to be confirmed. So the fact that it was confirmed in separate labs and separate, we never talked to each other, we never met. We subsequently all become great friends because we're all co converged on the same ideas. But um, so, so the relevance for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's was, was becoming very ap apparent. So then, but we needed to find, to really prove our point, we needed to find another mouse model because the prion disease is so rare. And this mouse has a frontotemporal dementia start type um, deficit. It, they overexpress a mutation that's associated frontotemporal dementia. And um, you can see, I haven't got the videos, but you, you can all see that this is not a healthy mouse. It's got a bad posturing, bad grooming, and, and it's got a degenerated hippocampus. And again, we treated these mice from a sensible time point in their thing, and that, that's the effect of the GSK. So the point is made that, you know, different diseases, different upstate proteins target that pathway, and you get the protection. <laughs> no, it's not finished. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> but, but thank you. So, but there was a big but. So I was amazed that GSK didn't jump on me and go, fantastic, let's run with this drug. We've got a cure for dementia. Because well, what they didn't tell me was um, that this drug is poisonous to the pancreas. So, so but my mice were all fine. They lost a bit of weight. And uh, that was it, really, because they malabsorbed a bit. And, and when I was discussing this on, like, on, on, on the TV or the radio, and they were going, what are the side effects? And I said, well, a bit of weight loss. And everyone was going, oh, how bad is that? But, but you can't give a drug that is toxic to the pancreas. Okay? And so, so that, that was shelved. And we couldn't really work. And all the, all the inhibitors of PERT that we tried were all toxic to the pancreas because different organs have different needs. But there's been a lot of work done in this field by, oops, What's this, what's this slide? A lot of scientists. Is that a, it's not, is that there? Sure, okay. Uh, there's a lot of work done in this field by a lot of scientists. And um, another drug was discovered called Isrib, which doesn't act on PERC, it acts here, and it's much gentler, and that allows the same protection, but without hurting the pancreas. But again, this isn't a drug that we can give to people because it's not soluble. So this is a massive focus for drug discovery, and there are drug companies worldwide working away at making better Isribs to, to try and give to people. But in the meantime, um, my PhD student at the time, he's now, a, he's now a fellow here at Pembroke, and he's a, po a senior postdoc and, and leading his own program, but um, he did a, a, a different experiment. So you can either, this is what drug companies like, because it makes them very rich if they get it right, um, but there is a much quicker route to targeting a pathway, which is what we call repurposing. So um, GSK and ISRIB were designed to do what they're doing here, but they also have other effects. So all the drugs that all of us take have other effects. So if you do a screen and use a, what we call a drug library, so all the drugs, you know, from penicillin to aspirin to paracetamol to whatever you like, um, and you just see, do any of those drugs do the same as these? 
Okay, that's what we call the repurposing. And Mark found two safe licensed drugs that do the same as, as these. And, and he tried them in the prime model, and he tried them in the dementia model. And here you will see that both trazodone and this drug called DBN beautifully protect the hippocampus. And what you've got here is a drug that's already available. So this doesn't need to do any phase one or phase two trials. It just can go straight into patients because it's safe. And we also used it in doses that are safe and relevant in the elderly. It's tolerated by the elderly. It's a, it's a licensed antidepressant that's in, it's, it's been around for ages. So it's sort of, um, it's never been in the spotlight. It's also off patents and not a great deal of interest from, it, from the big um, pharma companies. DBM is actually not yet licensed. It's, a, it's an experimental, but it's been through phase two. So it's just finishing at the safety profile in cancer treatment. But it, it's, um, it's also very, very safe and very effective. And that's the effect in the uh, frontotemporal mice. Again, you can see that's what we want. We want these protected brain cells. And there's increased survival with these as well. So the, I've, the GSK was poisonous and experimental. Isrib's insoluble, but trazodone and, and DBM are ready for clinical trials in dementia. So, so we are. this is where we're at now. We're trying to... Um, we're designing our, our, our clinical trials. Clinical trials are very different to laboratory experiments. You get one go, and you get one go to do the best design and, to, and ask the best possible question so that you get an answer that tells you meaningful data about whether or not this works. Um, so we are, we are building up to this by a, step of, a staged approach of experimental medicine. And the first stage of that is actually ongoing. So what we're doing is, here's the pathway again. You know that this reduces protein synthesis. And I kept showing you graphs where protein synthesis rates were down in brain. We were measuring those in mouse brain. You can measure them in human brains in patients using this, this special process of PET imaging, which is validated. And, it, and so what we will do, what we're going to do, or what we're doing, is you can see what we're going to do. We're going to measure protein synthesis rates in a healthy person, and at protein synthesis rates in an Alzheimer's per person to see if we see the same in, my, in people as we do in mice. Because if we do, then we really get validation of this pathway. You want as much belief in your pathway as possible. And we've, we've had a really generous donation from Goldman Sachs, from Cara and, and Richard Nodder, um, who said to me, what do you need to make your research work? I said, I need to get it into patients, and this is where the bottleneck is. And this is, I need someone, Ben, uh, Underwood here, who's a consultant old-age psychiatrist who runs clinical trials in dementia, to dedicate themselves to doing this study for me because I, I don't have the, the connections. So Ben has connected us to the whole clinical trials network, and we are already, this is the first ever human measure of cerebral, of, of brain protein synthesis rates in a human using that PET study, and we're about to do our first Alzheimer's patient. And I suspect that the signal we get, this is protein synthesis in a baseline, I suspect that the signal we get in Alzheimer's will be lower, and then we'll add the trazodone, and you can see where this is going. So um, that is, that's the end of that story. I've got, if I've got five minutes, I can tell you, where's my hose? Yeah, I can tell you another story, just to, sh just to give you a flavor of, of the, the fact that there's more than one way to do things. So I showed you this, and I've showed you the, our, our very well-developed approach at tackling the effects of misfolded protein on synapse number and neuronal loss. But the thing that really, which is that, um, the, the thing that really determines the vulnerability in the first place 
is the fact that we're losing our synapses. If we didn't lose, if we, we were up here, I don't think any of this would really matter very much. It's the fact that you get to here, this kicks in, you have less proteins for your synapses and the whole thing spirals on. So there's a question about why, and, and the real feature, if you look across these disorders, is that these numbers decline. So there's a question about why this happens. Okay, no one knows. Um, no one knows why these start to peel off faster in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, and, and all these other disorders than they do in um, normal aging. And they're already declining in aging. So I just want to show you the synapse again because you're going to see some pictures of these in a minute. So here we have, this is this synapse. This is what we call, this is the pre-synapse. These are green bubbles, a chemical with a message from one brain cell that's going to go to another brain cell. So this, this, it's a bridge. So there's the, there's the one brain cell connecting to the second brain cell across a cleft. Here they are, in, this is an electron microscope picture of that. Here are the little vesicles. Here's the cleft, the white line between them. And there's the, the, this black moustache, I call it, is, is what we call the postsynaptic density, which is where all the, the receiver molecules are. So if you're imagining, this is the socket, this is the, you know, this is the plug, this is the socket, and the electricity is going to flow through there. So um, why do they die? Um, we are constantly... Um, I told you that, that we're constantly making synapses and, and, and regenerating them. And all of us, and, and that's, we've all got to sleep a lot because you regenerate lots of synapses when you sleep. But, but um, all of us are constantly what we call pruning and cutting down our synapses and then re replacing them. And that's, this is very active in young people. It's massive during development while you're making your brain. And it falls off somewhat during age. But, you know, we should be able to maintain. It's incredibly important in, in maintaining and repairing brains. And it's what we call structural plasticity. And it's basically a balance between what we call pruning and regeneration. And you can see that if we tip the balance, if we have less regeneration, you will have a loss of synapses. That you, won't, you won't have um, the, the number that you started off with. So our, our hypothesis was that we think that, and this is what you have to do in science, you have to have ideas, we think that, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's patients and, and all those diseases are not regenerating their synapses enough. Okay, so how do you test that? So you can you can put a, a, a you can make a hole in a skull of a mouse brain and you can watch the synapses that those pictures I showed you. Um, you can watch these come and go, but that's incredibly high tech and really not not something that most people can do. You need absolutely state of the art equipment and stuff. We did a different thing. We went to nature. This is a hibernating dormouse. And it is well known that hibernating animals do two things. They reduce their body temperature, they reduce their metabolism, and they unplug their synapses. Because your brain is the most electrically active and metabolically expensive bit of your brain, of your body. So these, these um, and this is a well-known fact, that hibernators um, disassemble their synapses and then they put them back together again when they, when they warm up again. And it occurred to me that this must be a very carefully regulated process because these guys remember where they've hidden their nuts when they wake up, spatially and in every other way. So those memories are restored and those connections are, are regulated. And like anything in biology that's extreme, it usually reflects something that's happening anyway. So our guess was 
that this process was impaired. So here's a hibernating synapse. You've seen the electron microscopy. Here's the normal synapse with the, um, the pre and the post and the, the moustache and the gap. Here's a cooled synapse. And what you see is the moustache is gone. So the, the, the socket's been taken away and no transmission can occur and all, all, the, all the chemicals cool here. And then when you rewarm, here comes the moustache, the socket's back and activity's back. And this is a normal hibernation phenomenon. So my, uh, a senior postdoc in my lab called Diego Peretti pioneered cooling wild-type mice, which are not hibernators. Um, and here I've colored in the synapses for you. Here's a mouse at 37. He cools them to the temperature of a small hibernator. You can see there are fewer synapses, and he rewarms them, and back they come. So th and you can measure that. So this is, a really, this is really novel biology, because it tells you that these processes that are, you think are just for Arctic squirrels and, and you know, polar bears are actually conserved in biology. And if they're conserved for mice, they may well be conserved for us. Um, and so you all know the next experiment we did, which was to take our disease models, and now we can have more disease models and test whether they can do this on cooling. Okay, whether they, they can, because our hypothesis is they can't. So in, this is, I'm just showing you on, on, in time, this is where that, the misfolded protein reaction kicks in. So the synapse losses started well before that. So we need to check here whether before they start losing synapses, they can still reassemble their synapses on cooling. So here's an Alzheimer's mouse at two months, which is very early on, normal, cooled, rewarmed, that's intact. At three months, cooled, rewarmed, no response, okay? So they failed to regenerate their synapses, which is what we predicted. And the same was true for prion mice, and the same was true for another mice. So you've got, before any of that other stuff happens, you've got this early deficit in regenerative capacity. Why is it happening? What's the mechanism? We know that um, cooling and hibernation are neuroprotective, um, and we know that um, cold, there's a cold shock response. Again, it's, the, it's, it's, a, it's a way of responding to stress. C cooling reduces protein synthesis metabolism, but upregulates a group of proteins called RNA binding proteins, which are ready for action for when you rewarm. And one of these is called RBM3, and so that comes up in cooling. And what we did was tested whether, uh, we found that this response was missing in the Alzheimer's mice, and missing in the prion mice, and missing in the tau mice. So what we did was we, we raised the RBM3 levels just by cooling, nothing else, very early in the disease, and then we saw what happened. And now you'll see that cooling, instead of losing, that's, a, that's an uncooled mouse, here's a cooled mouse that doesn't lose its synapses over time, cooling restores, we've done nothing, we haven't even given them GSK now, we haven't given them any drugs, we've just cooled these animals. We've restored their behavior and their memory, and we've protected their brain cells, okay? And look how long some of them survive. So, what we discovered was that, um, well, this was, um, it's, it's mediated by RBM3. This was another big story. And again, the BBC, in my, my big PR machine, um, um, got, got the hibernating. And what I really appreciated about this, just like when they said Alzheimer's break, so even though I hadn't been working in Alzheimer's, here they put a bear on the cover. And the bear is important because the bear, because I was worried when we published this, they'll say, it's in mice, and they're called the 16 degrees, and you know, what, what relevance? Bears hibernate in the same way as small rodents, at th but they hibernate at 35 degrees, which is a relevant temperature for humans. 
because um, the therapeutic cooling that is done to humans is at 35 degrees. So basically what this is telling you is that cooling induces RBM3 and protects synapses. What I haven't told you <coughs> is that this response fails in Alzheimer's disease, so we need to fix it. And we need to fix it. We can't... We need to find ways of fixing. Now, we can't... Although you do therapeutically cool, it's not practical to cool everyone in this room. You know, it's like... You get no seriously. I mean, cooling is done on intensive care units for brain injury, for babies with hypoxia. And, and you, it's limited. You get pneumonia and you get blood clots. So it, it's, it's got a limited window because of the other effects. So really what we want to do is try and activate this pathway without, um, without cooling. And we're working, and this is where Cambridge is such an exciting place, we're working with the neonatal people. This is a baby being cooled. That, this is a cooling, he's got cold water going through here, and he's being cooled. He's had hypoxic brain injury at birth, and he's been cooled. And we know that from our early studies, and this is all unpublished, and, and, but we know that, and this is collaborated with Professor David Rowick, head of pediatrics, who's a neonatologist, but we know that this is working that we're certainly getting an RBM3 response on cooling in the babies. Um, so the relevance of this pathway and is, is, goes well beyond dementia. And we're also working with these guys. This is, this is Hampstead Heath. This is the men's bathing pond. And this is a guy called Martin Pate, who heard me on the radio talking about the cooling story. And he, he emailed me and said, can we meet? And I said, yes, yes. He said, he said I'm convinced that we all swim every day in really cold water. And we're all convinced that we're mentally superior to anybody <laughs> else. <laughs> so I was like, okay, let's have a look. Um, and so and it, he's extraordinary because he's got a PhD from UCL. And he gave me uh, uh, two years of daily water temperatures of the water they were swimming in. And so then we recruited a whole cohort of these guys who, re who recorded their body temperatures pre and post swimming. And a good lot of them were hypothermic. And we have, we have measured the RBM3 protein in their blood for the first time, and it, many of these have got higher levels. So the, the point, this is, it makes you laugh, but the point is it's a relevant protein and a relevant target for humans, and we may well be able to find ways of... I showed you with the PERT, we're all the way through to a repurposed drug, but if we can get a repurposed drug that does this, then that's another way of shifting that curve in the way that I was telling you about. So... I've told you two stories. That's from our, my lab. There's loads of this going on in Cambridge. All of them are aimed at changing the slope of that curve so that we can move the onset of neuronal loss to the right and keep people out of institutions. And science has got um, 125 unanswered questions. To what extent can we stave off Alzheimer's? And a 5 to 10, I would argue that, you know, if we could do this, we would improve old age for millions. And for me, that's job done. You know, we're not going to replace brain cells. We're not going to make people 20 again. But if you can keep people at home with their, their faculties as much as possible, then I think that would be an extraordinary um, achievement for, 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 the, for, for our world today. And that's where I'll stop. I'll put, this back. I'll put my favourite slide back on. There you go. <laughs> Hi. Thank you. Following the uh, repurposing exercise that your colleague did, um, could we expect any changes? 
Sorry, you did as well. Sorry, I beg you. Oh, sorry, I beg you. I'm a student. I'm just being generous. Yeah. So you talked about trazodone. Yeah. I know that the drug companies have made as much money as they possibly could have in that, and also they are new antidepressants. But should we be expecting a uh, a change in the license of trazodone if there is no other medicine that could do this? So we missed that window. We missed it. We missed it. Yeah. Uh, we missed the window because Mark, Mark's PhD. He did this as part as my student. So the minute you deposit a PhD online, it's published. So you can only change a license and patent before publication. So that's missed. But it shouldn't change. This should not be about making money. This should be about getting drugs to patients. So it shouldn't change doing the trials and seeing if trazodone works. stay away from trazodone yeah. because of it's not a nice drug compared to the newer ones but is well, there something the that I could go to to support my support a change in my practice to turn to trazodone more so, frequently so, perhaps so if you're prescribing trazodone for depression that's probably not your first line treatment exactly um, this would be a, a change of use but we've missed it because we've said it so that this is just all about patent law and, and um, uh, but but you, it doesn't mean that you can't do it. Yeah. I mean, aspirin is off patent and no one can patent it, but it's a fantastic preventer of stroke, cardiovascular, cancer, etc. But no one's been able to patent it for that. Yeah, but it's still right. used. And, okay. and, and trazodone falls in that category. Okay. Um, and I, I, I don't... This is not trazodone for dementia. Hmm. This is trazodone for prevention of progression. This is not trazodone for depression. This is trazodone for... And we don't know yet, hmm. but I suspect... There will, be, there will be a proportion of patients who, if you raise their protein synthesis rates, that's a nice thing. Yeah. And lots of people are using trazodone in other studies related to that pathway, which is relevant in cancer, and it works across the board. So I, I, it's not, okay. this is not a one-off. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And what was DBM, by the way? You it's said dibenzoylmethane. It's right. an anti-cancer drug, um, but I don't think it's got full license yet. No, no. Um, okay. Yeah. That's great. Thank you very it's much. That's a, it's a really safe drug, yeah. Um, I have um, a question. I think last year they, it came into the nature um, dedicated to dementia, especially Alzheimer. And they were looking into three ways of cure. One was the drug route, the other one was diet route, and the other one the social and interaction route. So it, do you know if there is in the UK they are doing these three way because drug has been going on for about 10 years and they are still investigating. So the wrong drugs. Hmm? Yeah. Wrong drugs, but yeah. Yeah, that's, so yeah. because there the is right more drug. of uh, in the terms of, well, the changing diet and then encouraging people that are losing the memory to be in the setting where they could use the memory, remember. So is there any <coughs> investment into this to alternative treatment yeah. in the I UK? Mean, so all of those, so, so as I told you that right at the beginning, that the incidence has, is not as high as, as by the changes of lifestyle. And all of those diet restriction and exercise, everyone should exercise, that is the secret drug, actually boost, they correct this, and they, and they boost synapse number. And anything that changes that curve, so both of those things you're suggesting will work in that way. But not everybody wants to get active, they'd rather take a pill if they can, and that's the kind of society we live in. But th those two approaches will work as well. 
and, and you can imagine that if you have multiple ways of intervening, you take a tablet and you exercise, and then you, you, know, you know, might have a much more dramatic effect on that. But yes, it's valid. Shout. A new module of understanding um, the neuropathology of, of all yes, neurodegenerative probably. disorders. So, so I think Alzheimer's by definition is, you know, the failure of memory and other cognitive domains um, in the context of deposition of some proteins. Um, and and by definition, when it's diagnosed, there's been neuronal loss. So that's not going to be reversible, but there, there, will, be, there will be phases and aspects of Alzheimer's that are reversible and preventable. And, you know, I do a memory clinic. If I could hold my patients at the level they are when they present, or even just slow down decline, that would be so transformative that, that you know, I think that aspect is really um, potentially reversible and... and, and um, and, and yes, there will be, you know, I, I mean, I, I always say, when I started training, HIV was the new disease, and it just killed people in weeks. And now people live with HIV um, on, they've still got the virus, but they live, and the whole disease modification is completely, completely changed. And I think we will completely change the experience of dementia, um, of, of these disorders, and hopefully not get dementia. And of course, with early diagnosis and early intervention and all sorts of things, this, this, the whole thing becomes a, will have a, a different face. There's a microscope, just microscope, microphone just behind you. We still don't know why it happens. Have you anything to say about that? <laughs> um, I don't think aging helps. <laughs> That's one thing. <laughs> I think all our defences. We, do, I mean, we know. Yeah, we don't know what, no, we don't. Do I have anything to say? Not really, um, I'm afraid to say. Aging doesn't help. Um, uh, I think um, there are all sorts of, you know, contributing multi, many of these diseases are now multifactorial. So diabetes, obesity, all of these things contribute. All through, all through, you know, disrupting these processes that are needed to maintain health, really. Um, so there's lots of different pathways that, that start failing. I mean, we're all, we all live probably twice as long as we were designed to live. And, and brain cells, you're born with them. They don't replace themselves. So, so all of our brain cells have been with us since we were here, you know. Uh, so whereas, whereas your liver is constantly regenerating, your skin and your muscle and your intestine is constantly regenerating. So I think the accumulation of damage over plus other triggers. But I haven't got a brilliant answer for you. I'm sorry. Are there any biomarkers that you might have identified that might come from a simple blood test to say somebody in their 40s or 50s? I saw you had it on one of the slides, and is it the, the RBM So the RBMC that? may be one, mm. that we're working on that, and the protein synthesis rates will be a biomarker, but they're a pretty complicated biomarker because you need a cyclotron and carbon-11, which has, you know... I, I tried to do this study in Nottingham, and we couldn't... The, the, where the patients were was more than 15-minute drive from where the carbon was, and it had decayed by the time we got there. So, I mean, you can, you, that's, that's the problem you've got. But there, if, 
if anyone can think of any, any of our ideas to measure protein synthesis rates in a less, we're looking at that kind of, that kind <coughs> of outcome. Yeah. Uh, I was very much interested about the fact that you found the relation with the temperature mm -hmm. uh, because I was writing a proposal on that. So is that, do you think, is there, so we all know that heat shock proteins, uh, HSP70 has a very good relation to protein folding and uh, it uh, upregulates uh, when the, the stress happens. So do you think, is there any connection uh, with HSP uh, and the temperature uh, for uh, protein misfolding related? So you're asking the opposite of what we're showing. You're asking whether yes. high temperature yes. accelerates misfolding. Yeah. Probably. Um, okay. I mean, high temperature is bad for you in the way that cold temperature is good for you. <laughs> um, you know, you, you get enzymatic changes, you'll get chaperone changes. I don't know if there's any evidence um, that it contributes here, but there's a confounder that fever and high temperature activate pathways that impact on the UPR, actually. Uh, but the specific heat shock proteins and chaperones are, are not, to my knowledge, implicated here. Will you be ready to uh, receive an email and then we can discuss further? Sure. Yeah? Yeah. yeah.
Well, I just found that I may be going into a relapse. Perfect, and then it's on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's try. Uh, we'll this one. Green and then you're then you're live.